Emerson's uh, song. Emerson himself embodies that song so very well. And he evokes such beautiful memories in my uh, mind. Uh, I'd just become acquainted with that song in 1995 in February at a Stephen, Stephen Curtis Chapman was singing at a Promise Keeper pastor's conference. And he said, go home and sing this to your wife and you'll gain some points. So I'd say the song for her to the day I drove her to the hospital for the birth of Josh on March the 10th. And uh, I played that song for her. Now, there's another part to that story. There was an Acura, I was driving an Acura then, and there was a recall on the seatbelt. So I said, Debbie, I need to make a little stop before I take you to the hospital. I'm going to drop off my car. So I, <laughs> I, <laughs> I dropped off my car and I said, look at my wife. She's ready to have a baby. She's going to have a baby today. The guy says, sir, let's go right away. So he took us off in the shuttle van, the one-mile ride between the dealer and the, the hospital. And we walked in there at 9 o'clock and thus began the process. <laughs> 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 Debbie and I had heard that a major storm was coming, and we had seen the uh, ominous black clouds in the distance. The winds were blowing in excess of 70 miles an hour, which is pretty strong for Middletown. And when we came outside, we discovered that some of the pine branches in our neighborhood had been ripped off the trees, and some of the pine trees had been uprooted. We looked around a little bit. We saw the oak, however, had withstood the storm. Today you have heard about three marriages. You see, the pine has a very shallow root system and a very soft wood. In the midst of a storm, a pine is in great jeopardy. But the oak tree stood firm. Today you've heard the testimonies of three marriages that have endured 50 years and one marriage lasting 60 years. And Jesus said it like this, whoever hears my words and puts them into practice, will be like a man who built his house upon a rock. The rains fell down, and the winds blew and beat against that house. Even the floods threatened the foundation of the house, but the house stood firm because it was built upon a rock. A rock-solid marriage has a rock-solid foundation of hearing the words of Jesus and letting one's roots go deep into the soil of God's love. To grow strong in your marriage, you must submit to Jesus Christ as the Lord and Master of your life. The spiritual journey of following Him is not a list of do's and don'ts, but a moment-by-moment -moment encounter with Jesus Christ as He speaks to you. And God may be speaking to you this morning. And growth happens. Transformation happens when we allow God to speak into our lives, when we begin to internalize that truth and it transforms us. The verse I'd like to begin is Colossians 3 and verse 17. We saw this verse last week. It is a pivotal verse. It, it is a, a summation verse of all that's gone before it. It also leads you into the next section of Colossians, which has to do with family and marriage. It says this, And whatever you do, God is going to be calling the wives to submit. God's going to be calling the husbands to love. God's going to be calling the kids to obey. Whatever you do, whether in word or in deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, that's how a marriage begins, in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God, the Father, through him, giving thanks for this precious person God has put into my heart. We must be honest, however. Many marriages are holding on by a thread, and in some, the thread 
has been broken. A man I know just announced to his family, his children, that he has been unfaithful to his wife with two different affairs. And he has plans now to move in with his girlfriend. The children are devastated. This generation is growing up, questioning whether marriage is necessary, especially if we can try it out, first by living together and then splitting up if it doesn't work out. The elephant in the room that no one seems to want to talk about is the decline of marriage in America and the increase in cohabitation. I can identify with the feelings of this generation. At one time, I had serious reservations about getting married. I personally had not seen any healthy marriages. <laughs> with the marriages I saw, I said, who would want to get into that? The people I knew weren't warm and tender with each other. They were cold and distant. I wasn't crazy about giving up my freedom. I kind of embraced my freedom as a single guy. And I didn't necessarily want to be committed, especially young in my life. And by the way, I didn't have very much money. <laughs> I'd seen a lot of unhappiness in the world, and I didn't want to be myself unhappy. You see, to me, marriage was a concept I didn't want to be part of. Marriage was a category I did not want to fall into. Frankly, I didn't want to be a statistic concerning marriage. Two little girls had heard about the story of Cinderella. This is the malaise of marriage in America. And one said, how did the story end? And the other said, and they lived happily ever after. And the girl said, that's not what it says. She says, no, it says they lived happily ever after. No, it says they got married. You see, many in America believe the story can't end with they lived, happily ever, lived happily ever after because they got married. To many, marriage itself is to consign someone to unhappiness. So what happened to me? I met a young woman with blonde hair and a Wheaton t-shirt and Nike tennis shoes named Debbie. I had never met somebody like her. There are girls that you like to date and then girls you'd like to marry. She was certainly on the marriage side of the equation. <laughs> you see, I believe I'd rather give up my freedom than have my freedom and be without her. I could see myself being committed to her. Money, especially having money, wasn't important to Debbie. We honeymooned with $200 in New Jersey. <laughs> and I believe that we could live a life together, a life less of God. You see, what changed the equation for me was a person. Marriage to me became very personable. You see, that's what happens also with salvation. Salvation becomes very personal to you. You have a personal Savior, a personal Lord who has given his life for you. So you give your life to him. And that's why I want to begin with this verse, which I think sums up the relationships of Christians. It's found in Ephesians 5.21, which says, Submit to one another out of your reverence for Christ. We know the love of Christ compels us. Because we are convinced that one died, Jesus died for us, that we, his children, should no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died for us and was raised back to life. When we reverence Christ, we are willing to do what he asks us to do. 
And what God asks us to do is to submit to one another, to defer to each other, to yield to each other. What characterizes then Christian relationships is mutual submission, esteeming each other enough to yield to each other, to forge a strong partnership. It is saying, I am no longer the boss. I'm under the boss's direction. I am now a servant. I am no longer trying to be in control, but I'm being controlled or filled with the Holy Spirit. I'm no longer thinking only of myself. I'm learning how to think of her or of him. Mutual submission comes out of a desire to follow Jesus. Early in the same chapter, Ephesians 5, it says, Be imitators of God, therefore, as God's dearly loved children, and live a life of love, even as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant aroma, a sacrifice to God. When you submit to each other, there's a beautiful aroma of your life. There's a beautiful aroma inside your house. It's like the smell of coffee beans or of bread baking, this aroma that is wafting up to heaven as you submit yourselves one to the other. About 75 people in our church have taken now Financial Peace University. If there's any area that needs submission, <laughs> it is to the area of stewardship in our lives. We know that finances are the number one tension in marriage. In every family, there is a, a spender and there is a saver. Is that tr not true in your household? A spender and a saver? You know, our differences attract us to one another. And then when we get closer, they attack one another, right? So one likes to save money and one likes to spend money. What happens is when a couple comes together is, and develops a financial plan is, they begin to submit themselves one to the other. The saver begins to loosen up and spend something. And the spender begins to tighten up and to withhold spending. <laughs> and when they begin to incur expenses beyond the budget, they have an emergency meeting to work through those differences, submitting themselves one to another out of fear of Christ, reverence for Christ. Now to you husbands. This is what Colossians says to you. It says, husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Love your wife with tenderness, and do not be harsh or embittered toward her. Love your wife with faithfulness. Do not break covenant with her. Love your wife with forgiveness. And do not nerds a grudge against her. Love your wife with your presence. And do not neglect or abandon her. Henry Nouwen, who wrote a lot about relationships, he said these words. To care means, first of all, to be present to each other. From experience, you know that those who care for you become present to you. When they listen, they listen to you. When they speak, they speak to you. Their presence is a healing presence because they accept you on your terms and they encourage you to take your life seriously. The command to husbands then is to love, to love with a radical, sacrificial, self-giving kind of love. In regards to love, I want to speak about two eyes because love is the death to eye. First of all, of an incarnational love, and secondly, of an intercessory kind of love. The command to husbands to love their wives is a call to incarnation. Perhaps we understand incarnation best through Jesus who took on human flesh. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. 
The word became flesh and blood and moved into our neighborhood. God left his world and entered our world. And you husbands, to love your wives, you have to leave your world and to enter her world. It means incarnating. Husbands, to love your wives, you have to make an effort to enter into her experience. Putting down your remote. <laughs> you know, you can't really listen to somebody with a remote in your hand with the game at full blast, right? To really listen to somebody, you have to um, put it on mute or turn the television show off and look each other eye to eye and lean into one another and really listening to what the person is saying. Looking into her beautiful eyes and listening to her words. Saying stuff like, really? I didn't know that. Hey, tell me more. Resisting the temptation to try to solve the problem. Learning how to listen is learning how to see life from her perspective, trying to understand. Love her. Love that beautiful wife of yours. If she needs to be held, hold her. If she needs to talk, listen to her. If she needs to vent, give her some room. I mean, lots of room <laughs> to let it out. If she needs to process, dialogue with her. If she needs to tackle something, empower her. If she needs to be lifted up, encourage her. If your family has little kids, imagine what it must be like to take care of these precious children, to live sleep-deprived, having been up with the kids, to have given up her career or blended her career with being a mom, to be on demand both day and night, to not have any time to herself, to live worn out, to wait anxiously for your arrival, to feel like when you come home the Calvary has come. So be her hero and help out with what's happening in the house. You know, a wife often plans everything. But if you really love her, you'll plan for a date and make provision for the kids. And if you really want to make some points, plan a trip away for a weekend. We'll give you permission to be gone. And when you are, when you are present, when you are together, deeply care about what's happening in her life, what's happening inside of her, what she is thinking, and what she is feeling. Imagine for a moment that you've been making this dinner and the sink has been dripping. And so as you're making the dinner, the wife, most likely, has been making the dinner, and the sink has been dripping. To her, it is like water torture. So when the husband comes home looking for a reprieve, looking for some peace and quiet, and he hears this drip, 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 he pays no attention to it. But the wife's been listening to it now for over an hour. And so for him to enter her world and hear what she is thinking and what she is feeling, and to be her hero and begin to tackle that problem, if he doesn't know how to fix it, call somebody who does. This is an expression of love. Soren Kierkegaard wrote much about incarnation, the Danish philosopher. And he asked the philosophical question, suppose the noble prince, the only son of the king, the heir to the throne, had fallen in love with the humble maiden of the village. And the prince would have himself a problem. His profound feelings of love for her his desire to love her and care for her were without question. But how he would demonstrate his love for her was the question. With his wealth and power and position, he could ride into her village on his noble steed and make a proclamation unto her of his love and swoop her up 
and take her away. The problem was that she could easily be intimidated by that kind of action and not have the opportunity to respond. So the crown prince resolved that he would show his love to her by incarnating. He would take off the royal garments and clothe himself with the vestment of the common man. He would leave his attendants and palace and come to live in her village. He would not eat the food from the king's table, but would break the bread of the common man. And he would callous his hands by working in the fields outside with the laborers. And coming to her village and wearing the garments of the common man and eating the food of the common people and doing the work of the common laborer, she would see the humility of the prince. She would see the sincerity of his love. And he would woo her to himself with his kindness and take care of her. To incarnate this incredible love. Now Colossians speaks to this love in Colossians 3 and verse 12. Look, it says, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, a man must realize that he has been loved by God with an unconditional, measureless love. That even as Jesus was told by his Father, this is my Son whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. So God makes that statement of you that you are his Son with whom is well pleased. So clothe yourself with compassion. To look with compassion upon the humanity of your wife. When Jesus spoke about compassion, he used the Good Samaritan story. That there was a person who was wounded and injured lying beside the road. And the person saw her with him with compassion and went toward him. He, he left his world and he entered the world of that person feeling compassion. Compassion is this inward movement inside of us that manifests itself with action. And what he did to that injury was he poured some wine, an, an antiseptic, into the wound. And then he salved the wound with oil. And he wrapped the wound with a bandage. He tenderly took care of that person because he showed compassion to her. And then there is kindness. Kindness is the active side of love. I've said many times that Debbie manifests kindness to me by making me bake sweet potatoes. She doesn't even like them, but she bakes them up for me and shows me the kindness of her heart. And then there is humility. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's simply thinking of yourself less. Marriage is a profound step away from selfishness into unselfishness and humility. We cannot talk about humility without talking about Jesus, who took off his outer garment and wrapped a towel around his waist and knelt down for his disciples and began to serve, to clothe ourselves with that kind of humility and to serve each other. And then there is gentleness. Gentleness is the opposite of harshness. Remember we said, husbands love your wives and do not be harsh with them? When there's a manifestation of gentleness, it's like a gentle breeze or a soothing medicine, or an encouraging word. And patience. Patience is long-suffering. Marriage will call you to long-suffering. The marriage chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, begins with patience. Love is patient. That means to suffer long. And love at the end is perseverant, which means to endure tough circumstances. And bear with each other, which means don't let the differences drive you crazy. <laughs> and then forgive whatever grievances you may have against each other. 
in marriage, you must overlook much. You must understand that God has forgiven much. And so we forgive much. We remember how much we have been forgiven so as to extend that forgiveness to one another. The couples we honor today have worked through much forgiveness in their lives, not nursing grudges toward each other, not bearing offenses, not becoming resentful or bitter toward each other, but releasing each other of those offenses. We did a marriage seminar this weekend. Here it was called Balanced and Blessed. And the the man who was speaking, his name was Lowry, himself was a psychologist. And he had a couple that came into his office. And, uh, well, actually, the man himself was at home. And he had gone to the bathroom, and there he looked on the cylinder, you know, where the toilet paper is, and it was empty. And he said, where is the toilet paper on this cylinder? Your job, speaking to his wife, is to make sure there's toilet paper here so when the king is on his throne, there'll be plenty of paper for me. And she said something like, (laughs) she said, I put as much paper on as you do. And he said, no, I put more paper on than you do. So what happened was, after that fight, he began to collect the toilet paper, the cylinders, and put them into a black bag and not mention it ever again, knowing the subject would come up again. So a few months down the line, there was no more toilet paper on the roll, and the discussion came up, and he says, I can prove to you that I have put more toilet paper on the roll than you have. And she said, you cannot. He said, I can And what he did was he took this black bag full of empty toilet paper and he poured out the bag onto the table and the toilet paper rolls began bouncing around. And he said, I've dated each and every one of these. (laughs) And she said, you're sick. (laughs) But he said, tomorrow I've made an appointment with a psychologist and we're going to go in and talk to him. So they went before this Mr. Lowry. And so he came in and he said, how can I help you? And he said, this wife of mine, you need to set her straight. He said, I can prove to you I have put more toilet paper on the toilet than she has. And he took out his bag and he dumped it on his desk and they went bouncing everywhere. And the psychologist said, you're sick. (laughs) And you know the truth is, you're sick. And what's causing the sickness in your life is what you're fighting about. And so I brought with me, I brought with me a roll of toilet paper. <laughs> you ever thought about one of these? You ever thought about money? You ever thought about the kids? You ever thought about the schedule? What do you fight about? And is it really worth fighting over? Isn't it a better plan to forgive each other for those little petty offenses, those little things that annoy you and irritate you rather than grind your gears? You can either live in the bondage of bitterness or the freedom of forgiveness. Forgive each other as God has forgiven you. When God forgave you, he forgave you completely and totally and absolutely. It never be brought up again. And love keeps no record of wrongs suffered. What's eating up marriages all across this land is we are not forgiving each other We're holding our grudges against each other, finding these incompatible differences and divorcing each other. Let this peace of Christ rule in your hearts. 
You see, love must be incarnated. And love also must have intercession. Before Debbie and I were married, I was looking for wisdom on how to have a strong marriage. I really wanted to have one. So I asked somebody, I said, tell me, what have you done, because he had a strong marriage, what have you done to have a strong and healthy marriage? He said, every day I have prayed for my wife, and as often as we can, we have prayed together. At that time, I thought the advice, I was a little bit underwhelmed by it. Kind of sounds nice, but there must be something more to this intimacy thing. But I have over the years seen the profoundness and the pricelessness of that counsel to pray every day for and with your spouse. And I have learned to pray for Debbie, for God to strengthen her, for God to give her wisdom, for her to overcome obstacles, for her to persevere through difficulties, and she's had many, and learn to pray with her about the matters in our life. We'll pray in our bed before the day gets going. We'll get pray at the kitchen table. We'll pray sometimes with family devotions. But learning to pray together builds intimacy in marriage. A brother is going to come to testify now as Paul Wareham. And he's going to say a word about praying with and praying for your wife. I shared this story in the, the first service. I've, I've been blessed to be attending this church since 94, shortly after Debbie and I, my wife, were married. And about three years into our marriage, uh, Debbie and I were having some conflicts, and the older gentleman in the church here, Phil and Barbara Weiss, I've been, they've been serving here for longer than I have. But I was talking to Phil one afternoon, working around the church, and I was asking him some counsel about marriage. And, you know, with his silver-haired wisdom, I expected some knowledge to come from him, some godly knowledge. And I actually have used this wisdom, uh, Phil, many times. But I was telling him about the situation, and he, he said to me, Paul, you need to learn to keep your mouth shut. <laughs> so... I understand more clearly how Phil has lasted 50 years. It is godly counsel. It's the fool that can't keep his mouth shut. Colossians 3, verse 19. Husbands, love your wives and do not be bitter toward them. The words are easy to read and for the most part, they're easy to follow. So why bother telling husbands to love your wives and not be bitter towards them? The truth is that love is not always easy. Just look at the cross. The love of Christ toward us brought him to crucifixion. As a matter of fact, the Apostle Paul, in his letter to the church at Ephesus, even tells husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. It's Ephesians 5, verse 25. The love that he is referring to is a love that's far greater than mere feelings. The prayer of Jesus in the garden at Gethsemane makes it clear that Jesus was feeling a lot of anguish. But his love for the Father and for his church kept him from wavering in doing the Father's will. 
That is the love that Paul is speaking of. Love your wives selflessly. I want to share with you a story that some of you may have heard, but it is worth repeating. Debbie and I had come into a particularly tumultuous time in our marriage, and we decided to see a counselor. I'll never forget God's tap on my shoulder. We were with the counselor, and I was angry. I was telling Debbie if she would just listen to me, she would understand what I'm trying to say. I said it again, and as soon as I said the words, as soon as they came out of my mouth, I realized how angry I was and how bitter I had become. I realized that I was not only not listening to her, but I was not listening to God. The counselor had asked me, how was I praying for my wife? And I said, I really didn't feel like praying for her. It didn't seem to matter how much I prayed. Nothing changed. But got me, it got me thinking, and I started talking to God about my frustration with the situation and my prayers about, for my wife. I realized that I was praying for her. My prayer? God, please change her. Isn't that what we want? Change them, God, not us. We're fine. The word of God convicted my heart, and I was not that I was not being the husband that he was calling me to be. And my prayers changed. God, change me. Change my heart and give me the love that I need for my wife. I don't know how to love her, God, but you do. Teach me. God is faithful. The month of May has been a sermon series about this new life. The new life in Christ. Sometimes we settle in and our new lives look old. Is the word of God still changing us? Are we being convicted to make changes in our attitudes and our actions because of what we hear and what we read? Is this just another day at church or are our lives being transformed? Colossians 3, verses 9 and 10. Do not lie to one another since you have put off this old man with his deeds and have put on the new man who is renewed in the knowledge according to the image of him who created him. Are we being renewed in this knowledge? That is my prayer. I want to read to you God's definition of love. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 4. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy, and love does not parade itself. It is not puffed up, and it does not behave rudely. It does not seek its own, and it is not provoked. It thinks no evil. It does not rejoice in iniquity, but it rejoices in truth. It bears all things, it believes all things, and it hopes all things. It endures all things. Love 
never fails. Husbands, love your wives and do not be bitter towards them. So what should we say to the wives? In light of that love being given forth by the man, there's response, and the response is submission. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. When we come to an intersection and the light isn't working and the police officer is taking charge and telling people from various directions which one to go and bringing order out of chaos, nobody really minds their submission. Someone is vested with authority and bringing order to that situation. When a quarterback on the football field calls the play and the line blocks and the wide receiver goes deep and the halfback takes the fake and they score the touchdown, nobody minds that someone is vested with authority. Each of them is submitting themselves to the play. When the surgeon in the operating room pulls together his team, the anesthesiologist, the nurses, and performs the surgery because they all submitted to one another, one was vested with authority and it brought order to that room and the objective was achieved. God's design in marriage is for harmony and for peace. Wives, submit yourselves, yield yourselves, defer yourselves to your husbands. Esteem them enough to respect their position of being head of a family. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his letters from prison, addressed one of his friends, saying to him, You are now the head of your family, even as Christ is head of the church, and as Christ is accorded respect and dignity and honor for that very position, so you are accorded that dignity and respect of being the head of your family. As the church submits itself to Christ, so the wife should submit herself to her husband in everything. Marriage is governed by mutual submission. The husband is to take the initiative and to show forth the love of Jesus Christ, the sacrificial, selfless love. And the response of the wife is of glad, willing submission. It comes from the fact that we have died to our former life and we are alive now with Christ. So by way of summary, I'm going to invite the praise team to come on back up. Here's what it says. Each one of you... <laughs> should love his wife as he loves himself. And the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. When you speak badly of your husband, when you nullify him, when you nag at him, you disrespect your husband, breaking the will of God. And husbands, when you neglect your wives, when you abandon them, you fail to love them as Christ intended you to love them. The command is to love her and to respect him. A man feels loved when he is respected. And a woman feels respected when she is loved. There was a couple that lived out in Goshen, Indiana. Nobody would say they had a strong marriage. There was a tension in that home. She did stuff to annoy him, (laughs) and he did stuff to irritate her. You could say... They walked into their marriage with baggage, and they kept adding stuff to that suitcase. 
The man in his 70s understood the incredible love of God. He had never heard of it, knew it before, but he became a believer. He knew that his time on this earth was short and eternity was long. And there was a reconciliation with God and a reconciliation with each other. The grudges they had nursed were forgiven. The hateful feelings they had experienced now began to dissipate. And they became friends on good terms with each other. And the man had cancer. And he died and went to heaven. The wife sincerely grieved his loss. But in her grieving, she found notes all around the house left by her husband. She found a note on top of the pillow. She found a note inside the linen closet. Thank you for washing the linens. She found a note inside the refrigerator. Thank you for making all those kind meals. She found a note on the coffee beans. Thank you for making my coffee in the morning. She found a note in the laundry room. Thank you for washing and folding the clothes. She found a note in the closet complimenting her on the clothes that she wore. And she found a note in the jewelry box saying, I gave you that ring out of my love for you. And now I understand the incredible love of God. You've got to take hold of this love of God and worship a God who's full of love for you. He's crazy about you. And the more crazy you give out our God, the more crazy you can get about one another. So it all begins with this love relationship with God. Would you stand with us as we sing?